0: Welcome to Stone's Notes by Stone Consulting. I'm Maureen Stonehouse. On today's episode, I'm talking to Dale Leckie, a professional geologist with a history of working at the Geological Survey of Canada as chief geologist at a large oil and gas company and current adjunct professor at the University of Calgary. We'll be talking about Dale's book titled, Rocks, Ridges, and Rivers, Geological Wonders of Banff, Yoho, and Jasper National Parks. One of the many highlights is discussing how a sinkhole is formed. We're rocking out today with Dale. Welcome to Stone's Notes. Hi Dale, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Hey Maureen, thank you for asking me. This is so, I'm looking forward to this. I love doing things like this. It's so exciting to talk about the geology and the scenic sites of Western Canada, in this case Banff, Jasper and Yoho National Parks. There's so much to see there.
0: Yeah, your book here, The Rocks, Ridges, and Rivers, it's a really good one, just guiding you all the way from Calgary to Jasper. What was your inspiration for writing this?
1: Um, I've been thinking about it for about 15 or 20 years. I did my PhD in the Rocky Mountains. I loved them. I've been taking people, Canadian Society of Petroleum Geologists members, for field trips into the mountains for years, for decades, um, at the oil companies that I worked at, well, Nexen, mainly and its predecessors, same thing, taking people into the mountains, into the foothills for training. In those days, look for analogs for gas and oil exploration. We look at the modern, you look at the rivers, the Kicking Horse River, or you'd go look at Fernie Kootenay Transition and things like that, coal-bearing, gas and oil-bearing reservoirs. That's why I did it. It was, uh, just, it was something I'd been thinking about. I retired from Nexen, and it was time to write a book.
0: So, you've done a lot of work dividing this into the eight different sections. And in each one, you have a nice color coding where it details some road stops. So, if we're going to pretend we're on a little road trip here and we're going to stop in a section, in an area at each section, and let's just talk about each of them. So, if we start from Calgary, one of our first stops would be um, Mount Yamnuska.
1: So, Mount Yamnuska, you know, you're driving west, you're driving from Calgary, you, you hit the Petrocan station at the Trans-Canada Highway, and you go from the interior plains into the Rocky Mountain foothills. You're in the triangle zone right there. You keep going west, the rocks keep getting older and older, and then you get to Morley Flats and you see Mount Yamnuska, that vertical cliff. It is just so awe-inspiring, it is just so impressive, and that's the boundary between the Rocky Mountain foothills and the Rocky Mountain front ranges. And it is such a boundary. And why is it there? It's there because during the Paleo into the Eocene, we had movement along the McConnell Thrust. And along the McConnell Thrust, it's 480 kilometers long. It's a massive thrust, one of the biggest we've got in the Rocky Mountain foothills. And it was pushed from west to east. This was at a depth probably seven kilometers deeper than it is right now. So we had those rocks being thrust to the west, the let me think the Mount McConnell thrust at Mount Yamnaska. It's fifty-one million years old. That's when that particular set of rocks moved, and then it was put into place. And then we had oh oh sixty million years of erosion, and as a result of that erosion and the differential erosion, we get the landform that we see right now. Mount Yamnaska is four is five hundred million year old, more or less. Eldin Formation, um, algal carbonates. And it's been, it was shoved, oh, probably 32, 35 kilometers in an easterly direction at great depths. Then we get the erosion. We have these resistant algal carbonates. They don't erode as much as the rocks right in front of them to the east. We've got Jurassic and Cretaceous sandstones, siltstones, and shales, which are really easy to erode. Uh, may not seem like it sometimes, but they're so much easier to erode. So it was that differential erosion, probably seven, eight kilometers of uplift and erosion. And that's why we see that profile of Mount Yamnaska. Cambrian Eldon sitting on top of the Brasso Formation. So we've got a knife-sharp contact there. And again, this took place at great depths, seven, eight kilometers depth. Um, Knife-sharp contact where you put the 500 million-year-old Eldon formation on top of probably the 80 million year old brazo formation pretty pretty neat if you ask me and it's a reverse fault is what the geologists would call it or what structural geologists would call it or what you'd learn in first year geology so again really 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 impressive to see you hit the mountains with a bang there
0: yeah that's a great one because you really do see the fault even if you're not a geologist just staring at the mountain you can see that there's a different rock type on top of the other one they're not perfectly aligned um it's a nice clear one it's a great hike too if you're going on a road trip you might just want to look at it from the campsite because it's rather lengthy
1: throughout the book i don't i never made the book as a hiking book or hiking guide but there's hikes throughout the books throughout the book and i made a point of saying where you park your car where you start and where you go to and th- in the book and throughout the book you know let's go back to why i wrote the book and one of the reasons for writing the book was i wanted to take the people to all this as many of the scenic sites in those three parks map jasper and yoho as i could and i went into scenic lookouts parks canada and alberta parks and recreation built their lookouts at scenic spots they're there for a reason they're there to say come in i got something to show you something to see here and, that, and that's where all of the stops are they're in places like that and then there's some spots you have to walk into the burgess shale maline canyon um Pato lake uh, some of the hikes are two three kilometers some are 15 or 20 kilometers but all of the hikes in the book are along pre- most of them are long prepared trails Parks Canada or Alberta Parks and Parks prepared trails, prepared trails that are safe to go on because I wanted to make it, make the stops safe for people to go to. The book is made for travelers. The book is written for tourists in Western Canada, people coming to the province. I want all of my geological friends and geophysical friends to have the book like you do and most other people do, but I wrote it for people to teach them about the beauty and why we have such scenic spots in the mountains.
0: I think that's a really good way of looking at it too because if you're a geologist and you take a family or friends out to the mountains they say hey what am I looking at and this is a really good guide to simplify and explain it to them they can read it on their own or they could have a geologist explain it to them.
1: Hopefully they don't need a geologist. Let me give you one little story. Um, The first year when the book came out in 2017 there was a lady that came to several of my talks. I give a lot of public lectures. And she came to three of my talks. And she picked up the book at the first one. She came to the second talk. And then she came and introduced herself to me. And she gave the book to her daughter, who was grade 11 going into grade 12. They did the Icefields Parkway. And they stopped all along the Icefields Parkway between Banff and Jasper. And then the daughter wrote a report that contributed, contributed to her getting the Duke of Edinburgh Award. And so it was a great accomplishment for probably a 16-year-old, 17-year-old young lady. And I just loved it when that woman told me the story about her daughter doing the exercise with her and getting the award. Somebody could use it it wasn't a professional geologist.
0: That's really encouraging because she would have been 17 or so at the time too, yeah. right? Okay. So now that we've seen Mount Yamneska, if we get back in the car and we're going to drive up to Banff, um, if we, we take a, pit stop, we're going to have some lunch at Vermilion Lakes. What are we looking at at Vermilion Lakes?
1: Vermilion Lakes, I do like having lunch on the side of the road. That's the way to do it. Nothing wrong with restaurants, but let's pull over and enjoy the scenery with your lunch. So Vermilion Lakes is kind of different because it's in an area where the Bow River, now we're going to leave those 500 million year old carbonates, the 80 million year old clastics of the Cretaceous, and we're going to look at the Holocene and late Quaternary. And the Bow River in the Banff area changes from a little bit further west of Vermilion Lakes, it's Braided River. At Vermilion Lakes in that area, it actually becomes a meandering river. And then if you go a little bit further to the east, it goes braided again. So the river, the Bow River, if you look at Google Earth, Google Maps, um, you'll see that it is meandering all through there. There's Oxbow Lakes, there's Point Bars. The water table is really high. And the three lakes have formed in the floodplain, of the meandering Bow River in that area. And I think that's really neat because it's really unusual to get a flat, large, marshy area like that in, you know, fairly steep mountainous terrain that we've got. So again, it's the gradient of the river changes a little bit and the river goes from braided to meandering and then just a little bit past the townside of Banff, it goes braided again. What's the big thing there about the, the lakes? They're fairly shallow. Um, you can see sometimes. When the Bow River floods, there will be floodways and little deltas being formed in some of those lakes. And that's pretty neat too. Pull over on the side of the road, as you just mentioned, follow the signs and park beside Vermilion Lakes. But you can also go up to Mount Norquay and go to where the cement wall is and walk out on the Alpine Meadow and look down onto the Bow River. Look down onto Vermilion Lakes, and you'll see these large, three of them, shallow lakes. And you can see river courses that, in the Bow River floods, they go into these shallow lakes, forming the deltas. Gives you a really good picture from the top of Mount or from the Mount Norquay lookout um, down onto the Bow. You can see them. It's really, really, really nice to see. Looking south, a little bit southeast, you can see Mount Rundle, and Mount Rundle is the backdrop to Vermilion Lakes, and that's pretty neat. You've got the Palliser, Banff, and Rundle, and the cliff tops are the carbonates of the uh, Mississippian Rundle formation, the steep cliffs. And then you've got a little recessive interval in there, thick recessive interval of the Banff, Devonian, and then you've got the Palliser below, which is Devonian as well, the, more to again. Um, that triumvirate that you see on my Rundle, Palliser, Banff, Rundle above, and on top, is a typical trademark signature of so many of our carbonate mountains in the rocky mountains even all the way up uh, towards jasper you see the same signature there as well
0: i really like your suggestion to climb up higher to view the Vermilion Lakes and I think when you're looking at it from higher up it'll look a lot more like Google that you're talking about so now I'm really inspired to look at a Google map do that climb and see those meandering braided changes I think that's a really neat thing to take a look for. I was
1: actually quite shocked when I saw that and I did see it up in that Mount Norquay lookout that's where I first picked up on it I said what's going on here this is wrong this isn't right it's not supposed to be like that. Yeah. But that's what it is. And, and then I started digging into the literature, which is what I, I do for all of these stops. Every sentence I write in the book, I try and make sure it's fully researched, and I try not to make mistakes. Some creep in there. I couldn't find anybody who'd written about the Bow River, Vermilion Lakes, from a geomorphological, geological, sedimentological perspective.
0: Okay, so after we've had our lunch at Vermilion Lakes, um, from Banff, let's take a drive up to Lake Louise, so while Lake Louise is beautiful, Moraine Lakes is also equally beautiful. You need to be there bright and early to get a parking spot, but we'll just pretend it's now 6 a.m. crack of dawn, we've managed to park. So um, can you share the geology of Moraine Lakes? Uh,
1: Moraine Lakes, yeah, that's pretty neat. Um, one of the things I didn't do in the book is wherever I can get a little bit of a snippet of history or where the names come from, I would always include it. It's not a history book, but just to keep it interesting. So in 1895, um, it was an explorer, Sam Allen, and he called it the Valley of the Ten Peaks, because when you're at Moraine Lake and you're doing a little circuit there, you look at those Ten Peaks off in the distance to the west. And the, the, the name, the Valley of the Ten Peaks, the Stony Nakota people, they used to call it, um, and I'm going to misname it, they called it Wankchemna. And that means, it, it means 10 in Nakoda. And that's where the name came from. He picked up on that. Why is Moraine Lake there? Why does it have its name? Well, it's created by a glacial moraine. How does that glacial moraine happen? Well, to the south, a little bit southeast, if I remember right, is the Tower of Babel, B-A-B-E-L. And there was a large landslide from the Tower of Babel Babel, um, onto the glacier that was coming down the valley there. So we had the glacier coming down the valley. We had a humongously large landslide, supposedly. That material fell on top of the glacier, fell on top of the ice, became incorporated into the ice. And when the ice melted, we had an end moraine form. And that end moraine is what has created moraine lake that we see today. Some of the other things that we see when you're standing on the moraine, on the end moraine, and you look to the west, you'll see the 10 peaks, and you'll see a constant wall of talus cones. And talus cones are where you have a little canyon or a large canyon coming out of, out of the mountain, coming down the mountain, and it hits a vertical wall, and debris starts coming down. Um, and it basically, it's a wall of talus material. And you'll quite often see these little canyons that, that are, are, are feeding them as well. It's so impressive to see. A friend of mine, Heather Pant, She put a bunch of paintings in the book. She gave me 15 paintings to put in the book. And she really, really captured Moraine Lake, the alluvial fans, I think quite splendidly. She really captured the essence of the the Valley of the Ten Peaks. One of the reasons um, I wanted some art in the book was for many of those stops, I wanted to have people viewing the rocks that we're looking at through the eyes of an artist, as well as through the eyes of a geologist or through the eyes of a scientist. And I think it went really, really well. The other thing, you park at Moraine Lake and you do the little walkabout. And you climb the hill, and that hill that you climb is made up of boulders of the Gog quartzite. The Gog quartzite is 500, more or less, 500 million year old quartzite that was deposited, as I say, half a billion years ago on the western edge of North America. There's about a kilometer of Gog quartzite. It forms the spine of the Rocky Mountains. Almost along the Alberta British Columbia border. It's usually just a little bit to the west, sometimes a little bit to the east of the Icefields Parkway. Well, anyways, that Gog Quartzite collapsed. It fell onto this glacier, and it's what gives you, it's it's what created the end moraine. The Gog Quartzite, we're talking about the Gog Quartzite at Moraine Lake. Well, let's go 200 kilometers north. Let's go to Mount Edith Cavell and Jasper. And at Mount Edith Cavell Cavell in in Jasper, it's a kilometre of Gog Quartzite. Well, there was a big landslide of Gog Quartzite on the glacier at Mount Edith Cavell. Oh, I'm going to say they think it was about 18,000 years ago. The big blocks came out on that valley glacier, joined the Athabasca Glacier, flowed out to Hinton, met the giant Laurentide Ice Sheet, got deflected southwards all along the Rocky Mountain foothills. And guess what? That's how we got the Okotoks erratic, from the Gog quartzite again. You know, I did a little digression, a little sidetrack, took you from Moraine Lake to uh, Mount Edith Cavell and Jasper, and then I ended up with the Okotoks erratic in the town of Okotoks. Just such beautiful scenery we've got in this province caused by geology. Wherever you go, and they're all somehow related to one another.
0: Yeah, it's good to think about too, the way you explained it. It uh, really ties how it traveled those long distances because they are they are quite far apart and it's not naturally deposited there. So you need a process to move it. Um, and it's really good to kind of tie in the glacier is how it got there. And the backstory to Moraine Lake, where the name comes from, good general knowledge for everyone to know what is a moraine and why is it called that, right? Uh, and
1: then Valley of the Ten Peaks Behind. Now they call it, they, got, they, they call the chain of mountains Wankchemna, basically, which was, again, was Nakoda for 10. They, ch- they changed the name to a Nakoda name, which was originally, which is really good.
0: Yeah, that is good. Okay, so if we hop in our car from Lake Louise, now we're going to drive through the field area in Yoho National Park.
1: So I'm going to do a little reading to you. So to get from Alberta into, into British Columbia, you cross uh, the Great Divide you go down the Kicking Horse Pass into the spiral tunnels. So a little story, a little bit of history. The Kicking Horse. James Hector mapped Kicking Horse Pass in 1858. Short of food and in rugged terrain, he was kicked by his horse after it went into the river to escape fallen timber. After Hector regained consciousness, in a grave the rest of his party, thinking he was dead, had dug for him, it was said he named the pass after that memorable moment, Kicking Horse Pass. Whether that's true or not, it's one of the stories that floats around.
0: That's a neat story. Until reading your book, I hadn't heard that one about the Kicking Horse Pass yet. After we're through this area, with some advanced planning, we could make a stop at the Burgess Shale. Could you tell us a bit about the geology of this?
1: So now to the Burgess Shale, and I'll continue to read a little bit, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. The Burgess Shale. Unusual fossils from half a billion years ago. The Burgess Shale in Yoho National Park is part of the UNESCO Canadian Rocky Mountain Parks World Heritage Site because of, and this is key, the exceptional preservation of soft body parts of early life forms that are half a billion years old. Half a billion year old life forms, that's amazing. The Burgess Shale fossils provide a narrow window into life as it existed 505 to 510 million years ago after the Cambrian explosion that began even earlier. The Cambrian explosion is a period of time during which life on Earth rapidly diversified in perhaps only 40 million years, from extremely simple forms such as algae, To di- this is key here, to diverse and complex form, forms that lived on the seafloor or were swimmers just above the seafloor and had hard mineralized skeletons. The reason for the explosion of life-form diversity was a change in the physical environment in the ocean, possibly due to more calcium, perhaps less sulfate, or most likely an increase in oxygen. The abundance of so many delicately preserved soft-bodied organisms in the Burgess Shale is highly unusual and has allowed people this unique portal to the origin, biodiversity, and ecology of life in the world at that time. Now, this is what I think is so neat, what you can see in these rocks, and why it's so important that you go visit them on a guided tour. As you can see in the rocks preservation of features such as eyes with retinal and brain tissues you can see livers you can see hearts neural tissues stomachs and even eggs containing embryos and these are all in fossils a few centimeters to 10 or 20 centimeters in size it's just so amazing you've gone down the kicking horse pass you Stop to look at the spiral tunnels, which is pretty neat, and they're through the Gog Quartzite again. There's the Gog pop, popping up. And then you go to the Interpretive Center in the town of Field. From the Interpretive Center, and it almost lines up to the south, you can see Mount Stephen, to the north, you can see Mount Field. What's important, and why I mention those names, if you draw a line more or less between Mount Field and Mount Stephen, that was the edge of North America, 505. 510 million years ago there was a steep cliff right there that cliff was 100 to 200 meters high and it would collapse on a regular basis giant blocks would come tumbling down to the seafloor to the east it was a shallow carbonate platform but remember all that lived at this time was algae there was no plants there were no animals on on land we only had algae in in the shallow water, we had the Burgess Shale fauna. We're out in front, we'll talk about it in a second. But we had shallow water, two, three meters deep, nice and warm. We were south of the equator. And then in that line between Mount Field and Mount Stephen, what 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 you've got is that steep cliff. And to the west, you had marine muds. So the marine muds were deposited on the seafloor and worms. Organisms like that were going through the muds, eating the algae and organic matter that was coming off the reef, or they were swimming above it. The predators were developing at that time. You can find hard-bodied organisms with tooth marks in them. So we know that predators were developing. Defense mechanism, let's get more um, hard-bodied shells around us so nobody will chew us up. Really, really a neat area. It's right there at the interpretive center and field that you can see those. If you look up to the north, if you look up to Mount Field, and if you look in the book, you'll see I've got it drawn in there and I highlight it. You can see large blocks, some the size of a car, some the size probably of a semi-trailer truck that have come tumbling down that vertical cliff. And if you know where to look, and they're kind of easy to see, you might use your binoculars to help, you can see where they came off that cliff edge. It is just so neat. The other place that I recommend you go you just drive a little bit west, and then you go to Emerald Lake. And you drive to the end of Emerald Lake, you park in the parking lot, and walk around Emerald Lake to a view, viewpoint. And you can see Wapta Mountain and Fossil Ridge. And that's where Dr. Doolittle Walcott, in 1909, from the Smithsonian Institute. He came out here. He was on a horse-packing trip. He had his daughter with him and a packer, and probably a couple other people. The story is, they were on their horse, they were on Fossil Ridge, and I've seen two versions of the story. Either Walcott looked down and saw this 500 million-year-old fossil, or his daughter saw it, and it doesn't matter. But they got off their horses, and then they, they looked at the fossils there, everywhere there, and they followed them up to where the Burgess Shale outcrops, and then they started mining them. With pickaxe, they would use explosives. Uh, they would use chisels, and he knew their importance to our, to paleontology. He started sampling them. He took them down to the ton of field, loaded them on the train. Then he came back for nineteen or twenty years more. After that, every summer, usually with his family and members of his family, and he was up on the mountain mining those shales. And it's quite a, such a neat story. One of my there's so many bizarre. Fossil forms that have been recovered from there, but one of the neatest I think it's kind of to look at He's not very impressive. It's only half a centimeter or centimeter long But it's called Pekia or Pekia, and it was a chordate and it didn't have any bones in it So a chordate that's kind of like cartilage more or less and they say that that little half centimeter One centimeter fossil is probably one of the ancestors to humans. I think that's very very neat that neat to look at there's some other neater ones there was another one called opabina opabina and it had five eyes and it had an appendage on its front for grabbing prey they're neat to see but to me the kia is the neatest one just because of its background like that
0: well and to think that humans evolved from a one centimeter organism is a really huge growth scale exponential growth when you think about it so it's, it's half a billion
1: years ago too. And then several of those life forms evolved and dead-ended. They didn't go anywhere. So for whatever reason, they died out. But this one did, and therefore, there go you and I.
0: Yeah, it makes you wonder why, that's for sure. Yeah, Lots of stops in the field area that we would have done, the uh, Burgi Shale, the Emerald Lakes, So lots of stops in there. Um, Now, if if we continue on the journey uh, and head into the Icefields Parkway, one of the things that you'll see on the ridge is Big Bend. What do you think of Big Bend? I think this is a typical geology field stop that a lot of people do. It's a rather popular one. Yeah, what are your thoughts on it?
1: Before you talk about the geology, I think the Icefields Parkway, and on a blue sky, sunny day, when you're driving south to north, and you start driving up that highway 93 the icefields parkway and you're going up big bend i think it is the most beautiful place on earth and i've been to so many places that i think are beautiful but this just takes the cake and it's just so well worth so well worth going to see and it geologically it's it's spectacular you're in the main ranges of the rocky mountains the road goes up to palliser um the devonian palliser limestones and it's fairly flat line One of the reasons it's flat lying is because it's in the core of a really broad syncline and so it's a core of a syncline fairly flat a little bit of curvature to it and then just a little bit to the east is a fault and it's called the mount coleman fault and that fault offsets the palliser banff rundle remember those names again it's a reverse fault and the stratigraphy offsets palliser so it's sitting adjacent to the rundle and it's only by doing detailed geological mapping that you'd be able to see that and figure that out because the two cliffs are adjacent to one another separated by the fault you can see the fault and you can get start getting suspicious about it and then on the west side of the highway and again the big bend what you've got is steeply dipping beds uh vertical dipping steeply dipping beds and there because just a little bit further to the west you've got the simpson pass fault is one of the big ones and it's deformed and gives us uh, vertical dipping beds in the fair home group, which are located stratigraphically below the Palliser formation. So again, Devonian in age. So that's the Big Bend, just such a beautiful area. Because of the cliffs, because of the Rundle Cliffs, because of the Palliser formation cliffs, we've got those spectacular waterfalls that you see. And don't forget the waterfalls, especially in the spring or after, uh, after a big rain. Make sure you stop on the roadside polos to look at them and try and understand why they're there. It's related to the stratigraphy. Vertical limestone cliffs, dolomite cliffs, they're hard to erode. They're vertical. It gives you great waterfalls.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of waterfalls in that area. As you're driving, you see tons, but if you know where they are and you stop and you walk in for 10, 20 minutes. There's so many more that you can see. And you do mention quite a few of them in here. You know, it is nice to think about why is this waterfall here? How did it form and um, tie it back to the faults in the stratigraphy. But
1: you brought it up, waterfalls. Do you know why there's so many waterfalls in our mountain parks? Hanging valleys. Hanging valley is where you've got a large valley glacier, such as um, the Bow River Glacier. The Bow River Valley, there's a large ice mass that flowed through there. Little tributary valleys entered the larger one. In those little tributary valleys, there was only smaller glaciers and they don't erode as much. So you've got a small glacier entering the flow of a much larger glacier. You've got it. What happens is you get a broad, deep U-shaped valley being formed, but the tributary is a much smaller U-shaped valley. When the glaciers melt, the valleys are occupied by rivers. In the Bow River, there's there's the big bow river in that U-shaped valley. But the little tributaries that flow into it, the Athabasca is the same thing with the Sunwapta flowing into it. The Sunwapta River is a small valley. Well, there's a waterfall right there where the small valley enters the bigger U-shaped valley. You get a waterfall. That's where we get so many of our waterfalls. We go back to Yoho National Park, Takaka Falls, that's a hanging valley. And we'll talk about another one at Moline Canyon right away.
0: But so they're all quite connected from the sounds of it then. They are
1: connected again. Even
0: talking about the Bow River, you know, we were chatting about that back down at the Vermilion Lakes area. And now we've traveled quite a distance north and it's still tied together, which is. Um, it, is
1: it really, really is marine.
0: So I guess now we're almost at Jasper. It's probably getting dark. You know, maybe it's time to stop, have some dinner, take a break. And then there's so much to see in Jasper. You can really stay there for quite a while. So in Jasper, in the town, there's the Old Fort Point. What do you think of Old Fort Point?
1: Old Fort Point is kind of neat from a perspective that you'll see right away. So Old Fort Point, they don't know where the name came from. Old Fort Point could be an old Hudson's Bay Company fort name. Is one possibility, or it's a shortened, or, or it's a, a version of Old Ford Point where they used to cross the river because um, the Athabasca River is really shallow right there. And so it might've been a place for the fur traders, for the First Nations people to cross. They don't know, but that's how it got its name. It's a great viewpoint. It's really worth the, the climb. You do the hike, you do the park and then do the hike. And it's a beautiful hike. Uh, you get to the top of Old Fort Point, and you can see 360 degrees almost. And you can see the rocks all, over, all around Jasper. Most of those rocks are Cambrian in age. We won't go into the details on the different mountains, but on Old Fort Point, the rocks are about 600, 610 million years old. They're part of the Windermere Supergroup. And again, that was 600 million years ago, that was the edge of North America. And there were deep turbidites. Deep water turbidites being deposited on the western edge of North America. And those are the deposits that you see at Old Fort Point. You see channel deposits. There are fluvial, uh, fluvial sands. There are turbidite channels, t- turbidite sands. There's debris flow deposits. It was really deep water, an unstable environment. An interesting thing, 608 million years old. If you do a little bit of searching, that was about the time that many people... Paul Hoffman uh, was the first major proponent of it, suggested that we had snowball Earth. People suggest that about that time, the Earth froze solid around the whole of the globe. In the equator, it might have been like a big slushy, but it was frozen solid. Um, There's a little issue with that. I don't see anybody really saying that for these rocks that we're looking at in Jasper, but... One of the scientists at the Geological Survey of Canada, Margot McMechan, has mapped really large glacial deposits, thick glacial deposits, extensive glacial deposits to the north and east of Old Fort Point. But what I'm looking for is somebody to say, yeah, somewhere in the Old Fort Point area, somewhere in the Jasper area, we also see evidence of snowball earth. And I'm not saying it's not there, but when I went through that literature, I couldn't find it. I digress. To McBride which is about an hour west of Jasper. You fly into the mountains there and you can see uh, Windermere Supergroup rocks there. Well there are deposits that look like like they're ice rafted sands and gravels that fell into these deep water deposits and that would give you some support for some of Margot McMecken's observations of the great glacier that we had to the north and to the northeast. Now let's leave those 608 million year old rocks and let's go 608 million years into the future. We're going to go to about 25 to 10,000 years ago when Western Canada was covered in ice and then the ice was melting. But Old Fort Point, when you go into the town, get off Old Fort Point, get into the town of Jasper, um, just somewhere along the highway near where the railroad tracks are and look back at Old Fort Point. What you'll see is that it's smooth on its western side, and it's got a really rough eastern side and northeastern side. It's a roche moutonnée. The glacier flowed over a bedrock knob, streamlined the up ice side of Old Fort Point, polished it and smoothed it. And then on the downstream side of Old Fort Point, meltwater would come out from the pressure in the bottom of the ice, freeze-thaw action would break up boulders, And the ice would pluck those boulders and move them downstream. Now, if we go back to Old Fort Point, you're doing your hike on top of Old Fort Point, you can see ice scratches, you can see striations, you can see chatter marks, you can see a layer of glacial till. And now, if you know what to look for, on the upstream side, meaning to the west, you're gonna see it's much smoother. On the eastern side, northeastern side, it's much rougher. That's where those blocks have been plucked from. So again, the term is Roche-Moutonnet, French, sheep rock. Pretty neat. So what I like about Old Fort Point, we've got these evidence for glaciers 608 million years ago. We've got evidence for glaciers. Full cycle again. I, pr- I think that's pretty neat.
0: Yeah, and there's lots of different evidence and different rock structures that you can look for up there, as you mentioned. So um, kind of neat to go up there and zoom in a little bit and really soak in the details. Yeah. yeah, so there's lots of other really neat areas in Jasper. You know, maybe everyone's had a good night's sleep. Now they're up ready for the next day and somewhere good to check out would be the Magdalene Canyon. I've seen that one and it's beautiful. One of the prettiest in the area. What's the geology story there?
1: So Maline Canyon, that's such a beautiful area. And it is one of my favorites. i got lots of favorites and tomorrow would be a different favorite, but it's one of my favorites. And it's tied to Malene Lake and a series of caves that drain Malene Lake. So 16 kilometers away up the valley is Malene Lake. And the bottom of Malene Lake is drained by caves some of those caves the water coming out of those caves flows 16 kilometers and exits in maline canyon now maline canyon we talked about hanging valleys a little while ago well the maline river flows into the athabasca river and it flows over a very steep walled canyon and that canyon is maline canyon so what we've got is a small glacier that occupied maline the Maligne River Valley. That small glacier entered the Athabasca River Valley, which was really, really large. It was a really large glacier. And when the ice melted, you were left with a vertical cliff. And that cliff is where the waterfalls and the canyons of Malene Canyon are. So you've got Maligne Canyon and the canyon can be as narrow as two meters wide. You've got water that'll fall and drop up to 55 meters, some of the waterfalls. The height from the top of Maline River down to the Athabasca River, that hanging valley total height, is about 90 meters. So it's pretty impressive. It's very, very impressive. That's one origin that's been postulated, and it's the one that I favor. Well, there's also some people who suggest that Maline Canyon used to be an ancient cave system. We know there are caves there already, because I mentioned the caves that drained down from Moline Lake, 16 kilometers away. Well, during the last glaciation, again, the glaciers are pardoned, they may have scoured the top of that cave system away, exposing it. And then when the ice melted, the Moline River kept flowing, and we start continue to cut those caves. Some people suggest that there's glacial till in, in, in some of the little outcrops within the canyon. When you start at the Moline Canyon Tea House, I want you to go look at a lean river. And what you're gonna see is a bunch of potholes. So what's a pothole? A Pothole is when you get a quartzite boulder or a hard boulder that starts to twirl around when the river is in flood, and it starts to drill a hole in the soft limestone. Hard quartzite, it's much harder than limestone, and turbulence in the water really starts to spin that rock and you start to cut all these holes within the, the, the Devonian limestone that we've got there, and you get a lot of these potholes. You see them right, right beside the tea house. And they're really impressive to see. Quite often you'll see the quartzite boulder in the bottom of them. So take a look at that. When you're traveling around the mountains, wherever you see a hanging valley in the carbonates, take a look for potholes. They're in most of them. They're pretty common when you know what to look for. There are six bridges on Moline Canyon and they're kind of reference points and they cross the canyon back and forth and they're really interesting to, to, to give you a different perspective on the canyon. And you go down the canyon, you go down the canyon and initially it's steep and narrow, it starts to flatten out. And then between fourth and fifth bridge, this is important because it's so neat. You start seeing these springs coming out of the side of the mountain, out of the side of the valley wall. And you start to, and it's coming out of fractured jointed um, again, Devonian carbonates, and you wonder, well, where is this coming from? Well, you remember I started a few minutes ago by saying Maline Lake, big caves draining the bottom of Maline, drain through the bottom of Maline Lake. The water comes 16 kilometers downstream, in the cave. Well, the glaciers and the river deposits have blocked the exits to those caves, so the water can't get out through the cave exits. So there's so much pressure that it comes out through the fractures and the joints in the Devonian finer grain rocks that you see there. And there's several of these springs that you see exiting, and they're just so beautiful to see. Now you know why. And a little bit of geology again helps to
0: explain it. It's so logical when you explain it that way. There's nowhere else for the water to go. So it goes through these cracks in the rocks. And then it looks like the wall is crying a little bit and the water is just running down it, the weeping wall. So it's uh, a good way of thinking about it. You know, there's nowhere else to go, right?
1: And look at the bigger picture. And again, it's like we've said several times. It's all, it's kind of all related. Again, you got to go 16 kilometers away to lean Lake. And, and then learn the geology. Oh, yeah, there's those caves at the bottom of it. And then and we've got, like you just said, the waterfalls that are weeping out of the Devonian limestones.
0: Exactly. So you have a lot of really good stops in here. If someone wanted to do every single stop, how long would you say it would take?
1: I would like to give yourself a week to 10 days because I want you to go hiking. You can blast through it and, and do it in two to three days with no hiking or minimal hiking because remember most of those stops you go to parks canada scenic lookouts every one that we talked about is a parks canada scenic lookout and so there's great places to park just walk a short little distance take in the viewpoint read my book and then go on but if you do every hike like the baleen canyon hike that's three hours yeah Uh, it'll take you all day to do the burgess shale so don't, I'd say don't rush it, but to do them all, I'd say you could do it in a, in a good week and it would be just such a blast.
0: And you know, right now everyone's staying so close to home, travel's a bit more restricted with COVID, so it might be a really good time to, you know, you have vacation you need to use up and you want to see something, take a week, 10 days and check out all these stocks, right? It's a great time to do it.
1: That's exactly what I've been thinking about, Maureen, is, is, is these these stops, my book, other people's books, they're perfect for a staycation. Yeah. And everybody in the family can learn something.
0: Great. Well, you know, I think, Dale, you've given a lot of really good information here. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to cover that we haven't gone over yet?
1: I think we've done really good. We've covered the highlights. You know, I, what I wanted to do was take people from Bow Valley Provincial Park, which isn't in the national park, but it looks onto the mountains. We go into Banff we go into Yoho National Park, we do the Icefields Parkway, we go to Jasper, and then we take all to, almost to the park gates in Jasper. And just the last stop, maybe just to mention very, very briefly with you, was uh, Rashmiyat, which is on Highway 93, um, and then, the, then Highway 16, on, on the way towards uh, Mayette Hot Springs. And it again, flatline rocks, I call it, it's a sentinel along the highway. It's really neat to see. It's before you get to the, Mayette Hot Springs turn off when you're going north and west out of Jasper. Well, anyways, it's the core of another large syncline. Looking at Devonian, Palliser, Banff, Rundle, there's a large thrust fault there called the Mayette thrust. And what you do is you put Jurassic rocks up against Cambrian strata. That's almost how we started this podcast when we talked about Mount Yamnuska, where we had Cambrian strata, Eldon again, again up against. The Brazot Formation. We're seeing the same story. We've come full circle again. It's just another, it's another beautiful spot to look at, and I describe it in the book. Now, where did Roche How did it get its name? Well, one of the ideas put forward is that there was an early fur trader and he climbed the mountain, and his name might have been Mayette, And so they named the na- they named the mountain after him. Another suggestion is that it's a Cree First Nation translation, alliteration of, again, I'm not going to say it right, mayatik, so mayatik, mayat, meaning mountain sheep, because there's mountain sheep all through there. So, again, we've we've covered the three parks. Uh, We've looked at the rocks in our our discussion here, Maureen, the rocks, ridges, and rivers. We've covered them all of Banff, Jasper, and Yoho National Parks. I think that's a lot of fun.
0: It is a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Dale, for coming on to talk about your knowledge on um, these three different national parks and sharing some more details on some of the lookouts. So thank you for doing that.
1: Oh, I appreciate it. It's an honor to
0: do so. Thank you. Stone's Notes is brought to you by Stone Consulting. We can be found online at www.stoneconsulting.info or send us an email anytime at stoneconsultingcorp@outlook.com. at outlook.com. On behalf of everyone here, I'm Maureen Stonehouse. Thank you for joining us. Until next time.